in that discourse of the Buddha that I talked about last night, the first step of purification is the purification of virtue. And the first qualities that the Buddha was looking for in a monk of great accomplishment were having few wishes, being contented, which goes together, living secluded and aloof from society. Now these aspects all go together with the purification of virtue. And there are certain ways that we can use them enforced and reinforced through our meditation, but we have to actually practice them in daily life. If we want a spiritual life, a spiritual path, quite immaterial what name we wish to give that life or that path, if we want meditation to have deep meaning, we need to practice all day long. And practice does not mean sitting with one's legs crossed on the pillow. That's just one part of it. That's where we can have the quiet and can have the calm and can have also a renewed understanding. But if we then don't practice all day long, Neither is the meditation going to flourish, nor is our life going to be spiritual in apostrophes. It's just going to be life, worldly life, material life. <coughs> Most people on this globe of ours, I saw it called global village, which is a very nice word for it, live worldly lives, material lives. If we want to do otherwise, we need to direct our mind, our intention into that sphere. That does not mean we've got to leave our families, our jobs, our houses, our clothing, our hair or whatever. It means nothing of the sort. It means a different mind direction. Now the first one that has to do with this purification of virtue, quite apart from the precepts, which I will discuss later in the course, is what the Buddha called the four <coughs> supreme efforts. Now, the four supreme efforts have to do with our thinking. And I already mentioned it last night, why it is so important to label. Unless we label our thoughts in daily living, 
we'll never be able to change them. And if we don't change them, they'll just remain the way they are, won't they? And if they haven't made us happy until now, there is no reason why they should do so in the future. They just think all sorts of thoughts and do not produce what everybody wants. Everybody wants peace, happiness, joy, harmony. If we don't do something about our thoughts, it's not going to happen. Nobody else will. There are two formulas. And if you remember nothing from this course other than those two formulas, you'll find, if you use them, that your life will change. The first one is don't blame the trigger. And the second one is recognition, no blame, change. There's nobody to blame, neither somebody else nor ourselves. But it's to be recognized. And this is what the labeling in the meditation process does for us. It's the recognition aspect. It recognizes what kind of thought it is. Now, if we continue this into daily living from morning to night, we will soon find that at least 50% of the stuff that the mind throws up is totally unnecessary. And of the other 25%, we would be well advised to change them, to substitute them. Just as we substitute in the meditation from the thought, any thought, to the breath, we learn to substitute in daily life. The way the four supreme efforts are worded by the Buddha are not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. Now that in itself is difficult. How do we know that an unwholesome thought is coming? Well, we do know, actually, if we were to pay some attention. It sends an unpleasant feeling ahead of it. Boredom, disinterest, fogginess, heaviness, dislike. All these feelings, or any one of them, comes ahead of it. And if we were to pay attention, we would already at that moment change our thought, which is coming along on the heels of that feeling. But usually what we do is something entirely different. We find a scapegoat in the mind why we're feeling like that we find a scapegoat of somebody else particularly a person most easily found and not only any person usually the one that's near at hand anyone 
who is not enlightened, thinks unwholesome thoughts. Not all the time. But if we're lucky, 50% of the time. That's already good karma. If we don't have such good karma, maybe it's 60-40. And if we have very good karma, 40-60. But that's about the best we can expect. And we're constantly looking for the scapegoat. There isn't any. I like to compare that to a jack-in-the-box. You know a jack-in-the-box that children play with. It's a little box, has a lid on it, and inside is a spring, and a little doll sits on that spring. And if the child touches the lid but lightly, the doll jumps out. Now, if somebody came along and removed that doll from the box, the child could come with a hammer. Nothing would happen. Very often we need to be touched just lightly and it all jumps out. If it wasn't in there, it couldn't jump out. That was just the trigger. And we continually blame the trigger. Very often we blame neutral triggers. But whatever it is, it's sitting in there. Otherwise it wouldn't have a chance to jump out. So what do we do? We recognize the fact that it's our own doing. That's taking responsibility for oneself. I am the owner of my karma. First step, I take responsibility. I'm doing it. Naturally, everybody is confronted with triggers. That's the beauty of being a human being. That's why the Buddha said, a human being has the greatest chance of becoming enlightened. Because we have so much dukkha, so much unsatisfactoriness that we will eventually do something about it. We also have so many pleasant situations and experiences that we don't become totally depressed. But if we didn't have all these confrontations where our little jack-in-the-box jumps out, we wouldn't know what we have to deal with. And very often, people don't want to know what they want to have to deal with. They don't want to know about it. They just like to have it a little more pleasant and everything would be fine. Well, it isn't. As long as we've got stuff in there, it's not going to be fine. It's going to look for the earliest opportunity to come out. So the first thing is not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. Which means that we're using a great deal of mindfulness, introspection, personal awareness on what's going on inside of ourselves. Rather than taking everything for granted, what's happening in our minds, and no meditator should ever take 
his or her mind for granted because we must realize even after only a few hours on the pillow that something can be done about it if we just take the take ourselves in hand we don't have to let the mind run wild continually so we don't anymore take the mind for granted and we use the fourth foundation of mindfulness which is content of thought the labeling in daily life and if we are very much practiced already in mindfulness we will notice the arising of the unwholesome thought as I said it sends a feeling ahead of it if we have missed that one and the unwholesome thought has already entered and is trying to make itself at home don't let it not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen now obviously it's much more effective if we don't let it arise in the first place but that takes a great deal of practice so now the next step it has arisen don't allow it to continue don't believe it that's why it's so important to label if you have labeled at least 50% of the stuff that has come up with nonsense you're not no longer going to believe everything you're going to think and that means that from that moment on when we no longer believe all that what goes on in the mind we are willing to change it we're not any longer justifying it let's say we're thinking something badly about another person thinking that person is stupid unpleasant boring doesn't know what they're talking about um, whatever it is and then justify that with all the opinions which we can muster which of which we have hundreds thousands which we can bring to bear on this negative thinking saying well it's because of this and because I've heard that and because I know this then that justification process will of course reinforce the negative thinking so instead of that we look at it and say aha negativity not going to help anybody at least of all myself let me change it let me substitute with something positive whatever it may be if we can't think of anything positive about that particular person that we're thinking negatively about let's take our mind of it and put it somewhere else let's put it on the last beautiful sunset we saw or the nicest music we've heard or whatever it may be just take it away from that negativity and put it somewhere else and once or twice having done so a great deal of self-confidence arises why is that? because we know that we are on the way 
to becoming master of our own mind rather than having mind pushing us this way and that. Now when we get that feeling, we're on the way I've been able to change my mind. We can also feel a great deal of relief. The relief comes about from the fact that we realize it's entirely up to us. It's no longer a matter of chance how the world (coughs) treats us, how the people around us treat us. It's no longer dependent on that. It's entirely dependent on myself. And we get a feeling of independence, of strength, a feeling of confidence. These feelings are entirely necessary for a spiritual path. Without them, a spiritual path is dependent upon another person or persons who may or may not say the right things. The Buddha certainly denied that that was useful. He said about himself, I'm only the shore of the way. The whole thing is a do-just-of job. There's nobody there that can do it for one. But the instructions are there. So when we have been able to substitute once, twice or three times, we also feel quite at ease about being able to do that again. Now all that, of course, is underwritten and reinforced by our meditation practice every time we have a thought we can substitute with the meditation subject. All of that brings it nearer and nearer that the mind becomes more and more purified. The next two instructions are if there is no wholesome thought in the mind to bring one up and when one is there to continue it. So the same thing again when we have substituted with something wholesome to continue that way. Eventually the mind becomes used to this. We are habit prone. And if you have been labeling, you will have noticed that. The same old thing over and over again. And it isn't even interesting. We're habit-prone. So if we have done this often enough, not allowing the unwholesome to arise, when it has arisen to substitute it, to deliberately make something wholesome arise and to keep it there, the mind will be geared in that direction. This does not mean under any circumstances that we are no longer able to distinguish between good and bad. Of course we are. If we were not able to distinguish between good and bad, we wouldn't know anymore what we should do. 
It doesn't have that connotation at all. And I like to emphasize this because in this day and age, there's very often the idea, everything is all right. It isn't. It's not everything is all right. But it does not empower us to be judge and jury. We can notice it and know it. We have enough discriminatory faculty within us to know what's all right and what isn't. We don't have to copy that which isn't all right. But we don't have to have any negative reaction to it. It just is. It certainly is, but it doesn't make it good. So with our understanding that only our own thinking provides our inner life, we will become a little more careful about it. We have to not take our mind for granted. We have to remember that each person's mind contains the seed of enlightenment. We can give that any kind of word or name, a spark, a light, whatever you like to call it, doesn't matter. Words are concepts. We all have that within us, but we don't even know it because it's overlaid with our thinking, particularly the negative thinking. It's overlaid with our reactions, with our emotions, the negative ones. And that's why the path of purification is the path of spirituality. If we can think of our mind as a jewel, as the jewel in the universe, there is no other jewel, then we might become a little more careful with it. It has nothing to do with the world around us. The world around us is going to remain the same as always. It has always been like this, apart from technology, and it will be like this. But we can take steps to have a totally different awareness and perception. Doesn't mean that we don't know what's going on. It just means that we see it differently. So if we see our mind as a jewel, we would most likely take steps to protect it. To protect it from being scratched, being dirtied, protected from being in the companionship of such things which would cover off over its luster so that its brilliance would no longer be seen if we had a jewel of such immense value in our house we'd certainly take steps to do that we all have the most valuable jewel within us and if we don't look at it in that way we will continue to allow it to be scratched 
we will continue to allow it that its brilliance is covered over and we won't even know anymore that it has that beauty within it. Brilliance is not to be misunderstood as brilliant. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has only to do with purity. In the Buddhist terminology, the word citta, C-I-T-T-A, means mind and heart. But as we talk about it, I will make a distinction between the two. Very often, they're used in juxtaposition. They can be used either the one or the other. It doesn't matter. But when we talk about thinking, then we all think of mind. So we'll use it that way. The Buddha calls this the four supreme efforts. Supreme because they are supremely beneficial, but also supremely difficult. One has to be determined. These four supreme efforts are four factors of the 37 factors of enlightenment. They are essential for any kind of freedom, independence, any sort of insight. Because if we don't practice these four, we will always be the reactor rather than the actor. We react to that which goes on around us. Now if we do nothing else except practice that, everything else will fall into place. It has, of course, the connection to I'm the owner of my karma. And that in itself, too, what we had today as contemplation, is also a purification aspect. Namely, the understanding that whatever is happening in my life, I've put it there. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter whether I remember that having put it there. I most likely will not. It's most likely that we don't remember anything of the sort. Also, we probably haven't even taken steps to connect cause with effect. It doesn't matter. But as long as we still look for the outside source, we're not taking responsibility and we will be reacting to it. The moment we admit that it's my life, my thought, let me see whether I can purify it, which means positive rather than negative. That moment I have taken my life in my own hands. The understanding of being the heir to my karma and taking that as an aspect of spiritual practice is a purification step. Because if I know that I'm inheriting everything that I'm putting into the stream of life, I'm inheriting the results 
I will probably be far more careful not to pollute that spring. It's all coming back to me. We may, if we think about it in a contemplative manner, later, actually find connections between cause and effect. We may remember having done a certain thing and getting either a very wholesome or unwholesome effect from it. But the Buddha said it wasn't necessary to do that. He compared karma with a spider's web, the thread of the spider's web is so interwoven that one cannot find beginning nor end. So is our karma, so interwoven we do not have to find the cause and effect, although sometimes it's very clear. It's so clear that one wonders later why one hasn't picked it up all along. Most of our karma-making happens all day long. It's not something from past lives, some of it is, of course, and it has nothing to do with future lives. It's happening from morning till night. That's when we're actually doing things with mind, speech, and body. And very often we get the result immediately. We can compare that to seeds we put in the garden. The small seeds that we put in, they sprout very quickly. Usually we can get sprouts within a fortnight. If we put in maybe seed for an oak tree that might take more than a lifetime but we wouldn't put in that many we usually put in little seeds because we want to eat lettuce or sprouts or carrots the same in our daily lives we make small choices we have ordinary intentions all day long it's rare that we make such big choices, big actions, which will take a long time to fruit. Most things fruit immediately. So if we would like to have harmony, happiness, if we would like to have a valuable inheritance that nobody needs to leave except we ourselves, it's a matter of paying attention to our thoughts, speech, and action from morning to night. Now, the thought is the master of the whole affair. That's why the four supreme efforts. The speech is the next one, and the action is the third one. We make karma with all three, but although the thought is the inaugurator of it all. It makes the least heavy karma. If we think, for instance, that we can't stand a person 
and if this person comes near us again, we're going to kill him. So that thought comes and it goes again. Now just imagine that person does come and we say it. If you come near me again, I'll kill you. First of all, we've made an enemy and secondly, we'll probably feel quite a lot of remorse afterwards for having said a thing like that. And we may have spoiled our reputation for being cool. (laughs) But now just imagine that the action follows that and we actually do it. We'll find ourselves behind bars, won't we? So it is progressively heavier. But because it starts with the thought, that's where we have to watch the most. Of course, if the thought has passed us by, then we'll have to watch the speech. But it is the thought process which we can change, and any meditator must learn that. Otherwise, his or her meditation has been done in vain. It hasn't had any result. If we don't learn from our meditation that we can change our thoughts at will and can change them deliberately to the wholesome, then we haven't really meditated. And unfortunately, that does happen. People do meditate and do not learn to change their thought patterns. And then it seems a real pity. So our karma goes along with thought, speech and action and taking responsibility for ourselves and recognizing the fact that purity is the key word for spirituality, we will probably take more pains to watch ourselves in daily living. As I said, if we don't do that, our meditation is also in vain. Meditation is not something that we add to our lives. It is something that will teach us to let go of a lot of things in our lives. If it doesn't do that, we haven't looked at it properly. It isn't a hobby. I don't know if anybody does take it as a hobby. And it certainly isn't something that will bring automatic results. We have to reinforce it all the time. See, if during the day we have let the mind run riot, doing whatever it pleases, which most minds do, we cannot expect that same mind to sit down then in the evening and get concentrated. It's only the same mind, it's not a different mind. It's a mind which has been allowed to do anything it wants and then all of a sudden it's no longer allowed to do anything it wants. Well, naturally it objects to that. It objects very strenuously, in fact so strenuously that one doesn't after a while try to do it anymore and gives up on it. 
because the mind just won't go along with it. So that's why there's another way of purification which is very important also in our daily lives. And that's guarding our sense doors. Now that's the word secluded. The seclusion that the Buddha was talking about which he finds admirable. The word secluded does not mean that we now repair to a a cave and never see another person or that we um, become a hermit of any sort. It doesn't mean that at all. It means secluded from sensual desires, which is the first sentence in all of the Buddha's explanations of the deeper meditation states. Secluded from sensual desires. That's what seclusion means. Now, seclusion, therefore, needs some sort of action so that we can actually do this. It needs a guarding of our sense doors. Now, our sense doors are, in the Buddha's terminology, six. You all know the five senses, no difficulty, and the sixth one is thinking, thought. We actually do say that ourselves. We say, oh, I had a sixth sense about that. That's our thought process. Now, these sense doors, if they're left wide open and allowed anything to come in, it is like leaving our door to our house wide open and allowing anyone to come in and do whatever they please within our house, whether it is wholesome and beneficial or otherwise. We would never dream of doing that. We all have keys to our front doors and back doors and maybe extra locks and window locks and all sorts of things. We wouldn't dream of letting anybody come in and play havoc with our material possessions. But we allow anything to come in and play havoc with our inner spiritual life. And then we wonder why we can't be perfectly happy, concentrated and peaceful. There's nothing to wonder about. We've got to shut the door sometimes. Now, shutting the sense doors, or guarding the sense doors, rather not shutting, guarding them, is sometimes not applicable in daily life because we have to be alert and aware to what goes on around us because of the fact that it is a survival syndrome. But if that becomes clear in our minds that our senses, particularly the five senses, (coughs) are only for survival and are not to provide us with a party, then we have finally seen it correctly. And that's not easy to do. It's very easy to say. Maybe it's easy to understand. But even that, most people cannot fully grasp. That they're constantly trying to make a party out of their sense contacts. 
And because of that, we are constantly attaching to that which is pleasant and pleasing and rejecting that which is unpleasant and not pleasing. So we are constantly living in a world of duality, in a world of liking and disliking, in a world of having, wanting to have, wanting to get rid of. There's no peace in such a world. And then we are surprised why they're having war all the time. Well, we are not contributing either to peace. The only way that we can contribute, each one of us, to peace in the world is by having peace within. Utter and complete peace within. That doesn't mean total inactivity. I'm always saying that because I know the usual uh, misunderstandings from long years of saying the same things. Peacefulness is not inactivity. Peacefulness is living in a world within of unity. And to live in a world of unity within oneself means that the duality of rejecting and trying to grasp is given up. Now to give that up, we need to take steps. We can't just do that overnight. We can't just say, well, all right, then sounds good, unity. I won't grasp and I won't reject. Nice idea. Yes, it is a nice idea. But to actually do it, one has to, first of all, become very attentive to oneself. Again, our friend mindfulness. Bear attention. And secondly, we have to realize that because of our sense contact, we are constantly in danger to either want or reject. Now, if you think about it for a moment, you will recognize what I'm saying, that if you hear something very pleasant, somebody is praising you, is really appreciative of your inner worth. You're going to like that person. You want to hear that again. Stick around with that person. But the ear can't hear that. The ear only hears sound. It's the mind that has made up the story about it. The same with the person scolding and blaming and getting angry at oneself. We dislike that person immediately. What a dreadful person that is. Can't stand him or her. Never want to see see them again. In fact, we'd like to tell them off. But what happened? Sound, that's all. The mind is telling it all. It's much easier yet to recognize that when, for instance, there's a sound in meditation. There's a cough. So the mind says, why don't they take some cough medicine? It's really ridiculous, all this noise. How can anybody meditate here? The ear never heard that. The ear just heard a sound, that's all. And what is sound? Sound are waves, aren't they? Sound waves, everybody knows that. 
So, if we didn't respond with the mind to that sound, it would just be waves, and those waves could be easily accommodated within ourselves, because we are ourselves constant wave motion anyway. Well, we never see it that way. It's the same with the eye. The eye can only see color and form. It cannot see a beautiful rose. It cannot see a beautiful girl or a handsome man. It cannot see dirt. It cannot see anything that's ugly. It just sees color and shape. That's all. And the mind tells the story. And because everybody has different likes and dislikes, different background, different um, bringing up, we like and dislike different things and can never agree. And because of that, we usually think that the other person is completely off their mind to like that what we dislike. But it's only that the color and form has triggered a different set of thoughts. That's all. Now with that, we need to actually try this out. So later on, if you're, for instance, outside or wherever you are, and you see something which you like, try again and see whether you can look at it a flower or a tree or a bush or um, uh, grasses or anything. See whether you can look at it just color and form and you will see it's very difficult. Very, very difficult. Immediately the mind cuts in and says, oh, very pretty. Isn't it nice how green it is here? And then you say, oh no, I didn't want to do that. And you look again. <laughs> and again it says, oh, very pretty flower. have a good chance of being more careful, of not allowing these strangers that do not mean well with us to enter into our inner dwelling. Our sense contacts are almost constant it's very rare that we don't have any. And they seem to promise that they will bring us happiness. If we only for this moment on where to see, hear, taste, touch, smell, and think, the most beautiful, the most wonderful, it sounds as if we're being promised that that is paradise. But it isn't. And why is that? Because each single sense contact vanishes almost immediately. Some of them immediately, some almost immediately. And so we have to get a new one. Which means we've got to run around trying to find it. This is how our economy works for better or for worse 
That's the economical picture of the world. We should buy, get, see, taste, touch, smell, and hopefully also think that which costs a bit and will bring us pleasure. And if we buy enough of it, the economy works. It doesn't work for us, though. It's a speculation which has only fallacy in it. We can't keep any of it. Imagine you're looking at a beautiful flower, or let's say a beautiful sunset. It's even better. Look at the beautiful sunset. Now you know already you can't keep it. So, preferably you're not going to try to keep it. But, you might feel extremely elated about this beautiful sunset. You might try to be at the same spot again tomorrow night, or the next night, to see it again. And then if it doesn't come, be disappointed about it. And go again, to see it again. Or you see a beautiful flower. You can't keep your eye on that for any length of time. Only for a moment. Then you have to take it away and then you have to see another one. The same goes with what we hear. We can't hear the same beautiful music day in and day out. In fact, we would become so bored by it that we wouldn't hear it anymore. Imagine eating the best food for more than the allotted time of 10-15 minutes. Feel sick afterwards if, you've been, if you continue to eat it. Or if you feel cold, you go and have a warm shower. And you like it, it's nice. So you say to the people who own the place, it's very nice to have this warm shower. They say, oh, we have plenty of hot water. You can have a shower as long as you like, five, six hours if you like. Well, it's a misery, isn't it? The same as with food. Can't eat for five, six hours, but half an hour is a maximum that one can possibly stand it. The same as with seeing something. It's got to stop. Our eyes do it themselves. They blink. Our ears do it too. They cut out. If you tell a child long enough, often enough, the same thing, the child doesn't hear it anymore. Cuts out. Can't be done. So our sense contacts have to be renewed all the time with all of them. There isn't one that's exempt from that. So the pleasure which they promise, they can give us, but they cannot give us inner happiness. They can only give us momentary pleasure. And because of that, it's a purification system. If we guard our sense doors a little more than we are used to, so that we are not constantly in the tempting situation of wanting or not wanting. Our mind, which reacts 
with that like and that dislike is a mind which cannot meditate because it's not a peaceful mind. A mind has to have some peacefulness when it comes to the pillow. Our judgments and opinions, our viewpoints, the Buddha said, every single one of them is wrong. And why? Because they're all based on the ego illusion. I think, I know, I want, I have this viewpoint, I have that opinion. And ego, I, is an illusion, so the viewpoint has to be an illusion. That's seeing it from the standpoint of absolute truth. In relativity, we use our viewpoints and opinions in order to reinforce our own position in life. I know better, or I know just as well, or I know less. All of those are ego supports which show us that we are actually existing. The difficulty in the meditation comes from the fact that we want to continue to be me. And we only have a support system for me when we think. When we stop thinking, there's no support system for me. And that's why everybody finds it very difficult to meditate properly. It's a human difficulty. Everybody has it. And if we are aware of the fact that our thinking process is doing nothing but reinforcing the me illusion, it may help to drop it. It takes a deliberate effort, and thinking is one of the sense contacts, to say, it's not important, drop it, let go. I don't have to reinforce this me constantly. I can give it a rest. If we do that deliberately, it may help to meditate properly. The other things, which are the purification systems, are all applicable while we're here in a retreat, but they're mainly applicable in daily life. Now here, of course, the four supreme efforts are very important also for the meditation, but not only for that. For all the thinking that goes on outside of meditation and during meditation, (coughs) it's very important to let the unwholesome go and substitute with the wholesome. Meditation will only start to work when there's a base from which it can arise. And that base has to be a base of purity, comparative purity at least. Now that means that we use all these things that I've talked about here and in daily life for supreme efforts. Our understanding of karma making and guarding our sense contacts. Recognizing the fact that our senses are continually playing a game with us. And that includes the thought process. 
They're continually shoving us from here to there instead of ourselves being totally at ease, at peace, resting within. Our inner life is our home. The home that we live in, the house, we can move any time we wish. Just call a moving van. I try and call a moving van for this one. Can't be done. This one we've got for the duration. This one's the one that's got to be kept clean and in order. It's very nice to clean the toilets and vacuum the rugs and, and polish the doorknobs. It's all very good and washing windows looks all very nice. But this is the one that wants a washing more than anything else. And this is what the whole purification um, teaching is all about. So that we eventually have a home within us in which to live comfortably, at ease, self-confident, free, independent, where there aren't any things that we stumble over, where there isn't anything that's out of order, where there isn't anything that hasn't been cleaned up yet. And that is what we do automatically through every moment of concentration. But we have to reinforce it more. And if we feel that this is helpful to our meditation, we'll definitely do it. We are so geared that we always want to get something for something that we do. So here, when we feel it's coming along, the meditation is happening better because I have been watching my senses, I have been watching my thinking, I have not reacted, but I have tried to be harmonious within. And if we feel that that's happening, then we will certainly continue to practice like that. There are more ways of purifications, but that's enough for one morning. It's hard enough to remember, isn't it? You can ask some questions if you like. You like to be reborn intelligent, you've got to ask a lot of questions, yes. Thank you. I find it very difficult when I see uh, a lot of destructive spite. Destructive what? Spite. Yeah. Other people, it's difficult mm. against myself, but um, I think I can just cope with that. It's when I see the destructiveness to other people, I find it very difficult. Yes, well, you're allowing the uh, dukkha in the world to affect you. Now, we have two ways of dealing with that. If we have any kind of influence on others, maybe we are uh, somebody who has a position that has some influence, well, we can use it. We can use it for the better. If we have absolutely no influence whatsoever on whatever is happening that is um, uh, evil, then the only thing we can do to help the world is to find peace within. Every single person that has found peace within 
is a collaborator for peace in the world. There are very few people in the world who have peace within. Very, very few. So if we can do that, we have already encouraged peacefulness and we have already contributed towards it because there are then more people that have peace within. But if we have any kind of influence that we can use by voting, <coughs> by, by uh, writing a letter, by doing something, if we can, we can do that also. But we should never do it instead. The main thing is that the world needs peacefulness. And peacefulness arises in the heart of men. In the um, preamble to the United Nations Charter, it says that peace arises in the heart of men, which is exactly what the Buddha said. But unfortunately, we don't make it arise enough. So the disturbance which you see um, and which disturbs you is one where you then become also unhappy on, a, uh, on top of the unhappiness which has already been produced. So we have two unhappy people, or if there were three, then you are the fourth one, which doesn't help at all. The only thing that helps is compassion, if you can't do anything about it, if you can't stop them, which is highly unlikely that one can do something in that moment. Compassion. Compassion for the person who's hurt, being hurt, and compassion for the one who's doing the hurting. Because he's definitely the owner of his or her own karma. So compassion for both people who are involved, and also compassion for yourself, because it is still hurting you also. Only thing that we can use then is that feeling of empathy, that world is dukkha, according to what the Buddha said. And we are in it, and we have to live in it. So we have to feel compassionate towards ourselves also. That's all we can do. (laughs) Okay, what else? Anything else? I think you've got two things put together which don't belong together. I'm not quite sure (laughs) whether you have or not. But the first thing was to substituting the unwholesome thought with the wholesome, right? And the second thing was, now I'm not quite sure whether that's what you're saying, so I'm repeating what I said. The second thing was that we learn that we are always reacting to our sense contacts by either wanting or rejecting and that we need to have a look at that and see how actually they are making us um, restless and how they are giving us this um, constant searching for the pleasant. So 
Now, which one are we getting attached to? In, in the wholesome thought? In your example of having um, unwholesomeness coming up, you suggested that we could possibly get rid of that thought by substituting, if we couldn't think something good about that person, we may Why? remember some music or, or something like that. Um, I can see that initially that that can be beneficial, but um, sometimes when I do that, I find that what I'm substituting, it's got a more pleasant feeling that there's actually attachment to... Right, now I see what you're saying, yes. I didn't understand at first. Yes, uh, certainly, initially, that's all. Initially. If you can't think anything nice about that person that you're thinking something bad about, get away from it and do something entirely different, but only initially. Eventually, you must still try to substitute with that from the negative to the positive on the same spot. But you can also admit to yourself that at this particular moment in time, I can't do it. I'm not able to, so I'm going to distract myself. I'm going to get away from the unwholesome thinking by doing something entirely different. And what you're admitting to yourself then at that time is that you weren't strong enough to substitute, which is perfectly all right. I mean, we are, we're just, we, ha- we are learners. We're training ourselves. There's nowhere uh, anywhere to say that we're perfect in anything. So, but if you admit that, then next time you try again with the substitution on from the negative to the positive, and eventually it works very well. We're very habit-prone. <laughs> we easily get into bad habits, too. Hmm? Anything else? Is there not danger of uh, repressing, say, anger? How when you do this and, and just uh, uh, making it grow underneath, just strongly mm-hmm. by repressing it? Yes, well, we can't substitute for something that we have repressed. We have to have it fully in hand, look at it totally and say, all right, this is anger, this is not useful, and so I will substitute with something else. Now, it may not work at first. You may have the, the quite honest wish to substitute with feeling compassionate about the person, and you're thinking to yourself, yes, I'm supposed to feel compassionate, but actually the anger keeps coming up. So you'll have to keep on doing it, keep on doing it till it works. It's just a matter of determination, patience, and perseverance. These three qualities are essential for anything that we want to become proficient in, and particularly, of course, on the spiritual path. It's a matter of rethinking. It's a new way of thinking. And since the old way of thinking has made very few people happy, I mean, there are some people attached to their dukkha, let's face it, but (laughs) it has made very few people happy, There's nothing to be uh, lost by rethinking in a different way. That's all it is, rethinking. So it won't, it's very likely that it doesn't work the first time. That doesn't mean that we push it down and say, all right, I've got rid of this anger, I'm now compassionate. We've got to actually feel it. So we may have to do it more than once for the same sort of anger. But we can only substitute for what we've got in hand. If I want to substitute this with something else, I've got to have it fully in hand. Huh? Right. And then get something else, put it away and get something else. 
But it can't be anger that's been repressed for, for a long time. And if it doesn't, then I'll come out. Uh, I mean, you have had it in hand if you've had it for a long time. <laughs> if you're aware of it. If you're not aware of it, you haven't got it in hand. You have only got it in hand when you've, when you've actually aware of the anger. And the meditation will help one to become aware of the anger. And it's very often the case that in the first two years of practicing, more unwholesome stuff comes up than one ever would have dreamt that existed. But that's very often just two years, and then it's it better. But the Buddha said, not expressing and not suppressing. Change. Recognition, no blame, change. Full recognition. We can only change what we fully recognize. And then when we have recognized it and have known ourselves, then we know the world. Because the world looks just like we do. Just exactly like that. No, no suppression. Anything else? Yes? What, what happens if I'm not trying to suppress my anger, but my behavior belies my anger and I'm with someone and, and she or he says, you know, what are you feeling? Or, and I'm trying to... But I've already gone down the road of expressing and I don't want to express anymore. I want to be honest with someone. Uh, and what would I do then? Well, we can be honest. That's, in fact, it's very important to be honest. But what we mostly do when we try to be honest is we say something about the other person instead of saying something about ourselves. We can quite honestly say to another person, say, you know, at this point in time, at this moment, I'm feeling very angry and I'm feeling really unhappy and unpleasant about it. Let's just not talk about it until I've got myself together again. That's perfectly honest and perfectly good and nobody's going to get angry about that. But if you say to the other person, um, well, you know, the way you talk, I really can't stand that. And I mean that's not that's going to produce more anger so if you blame the trigger for the anger that's also in people's opinion honest because that's what they think has caused the anger but it's not going to reduce it or make it um, make it possible to substitute but if you feel angry and you say to somebody you know I'm feeling angry right now I think we should just drop the subject for the moment till I get it you know, better feeling inside, it's fine. Nothing wrong with that. It's very honest. Most people don't, don't aren't usually that honest. Is that what you had in mind? Yes? There's a part of my mind that thinks, that I think is misunderstood, that thinks that I'll be being sinful if I really enjoy my lunch. And I find that aspect of renunciation I mean I I find it difficult to understand exactly Mm -hmm. what is meant there's something in me that that must be wrong to enjoy things (laughs) no the the wrongness (laughs) in apostrophes comes about when we rely on our sense contacts to bring us happiness 
and because of that keep trying to get more and more and better and better and again and again and are constantly disappointed and because we're constantly disappointed we blame somebody else because they are not producing what we thought they should. As long as we are looking for a sense contact to be the providers of joy, peace, happiness, we are looking in the wrong direction. And we are also trying to keep the pleasant and get rid of the unpleasant. Now, the minute we have seen that clearly, we can enjoy in purity. We don't want to keep it. We don't want to renew it. If it isn't available, that's fine. If it is available, that's great. But we do not rely on the sense contact to bring us that what we're looking for. As soon as we've given up that search, then we can actually enjoy. Before that, that enjoyment is always fraught with tension and fear. The fear of not getting it again and the tension of trying to keep it or get rid of it. So the enjoyment becomes much, much purer and better. If it doesn't matter to you whether you're ever going to have another lunch or not, you're really going to enjoy <laughs> this one. <laughs> then you really enjoy it. <laughs> All right, talking about enjoying lunch, we're going to say a little verse together about food. And uh, I was just going to explain that, actually, with the pleasure of the food, because it's always a question, so I'm quite glad that you asked. This little verse says, and I'll say it first and you can say it after me, it says that we don't eat for pleasure. And then we always have this misunderstanding, what am I supposed to enjoy with my lunch? What it means is that we don't eat for the pleasure of eating, but we eat because we need the food to keep alive. And this is something that we also have to have a look at because then we are less dependent upon that enjoyment. We can enjoy it. I hope you enjoy it very much, your lunch. But it's a dependency on it and it's looking for the pleasure of it. It's actually what we're looking for is to stay alive. That's the main thing. So that's what that means in that verse. So if you please repeat after me. Reflecting carefully, I use this food. Not for pleasure. Not for indulgence, but only for maintaining this body, so that it endures, for keeping it unharmed, for supporting life, so that former feelings of hunger are destroyed. And new feelings from overeating do not arise. Then there will be for me a lack of bodily obstacles. 
and living comfortably.